0: Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, our family moved over the Thanksgiving week. Uh, bad timing uh, to move because as we're downsizing, everybody comes home and they bring all their friends and, and anyway, had a lot of fun. But uh, we had no idea the horror that would uh, befall our family and uh, brace for this, it gets kind of graphic. We didn't have internet or TV for nine days. I'm going to repeat that for taking notes. We didn't have internet or TV for nine days days. I mean, this is Armageddon. All of life flows through those interweb pipes, right? They're just at work and, and, and play and entertainment and video gaming, all the essentials of life. It all goes through the Internet. And we didn't have it. Now, like any good uh, Western Civ family, the first thing we did when we moved was we scheduled the Internet Guy. Of course, Internet TV is packaged together, and, and they came right on time. It was great. He starts doing some things, tinkering around, little, you know, boops and buzzers, testing things. And he says, we have a problem. There is no signal from the street to the house. Uh, There is a cut cable somewhere between here and there, and we need to call an underground guy. And I said, the box is there in the ground, and the box of the house is right there. He said, but it's underground. We have to get a permit. We have to call dig alert. We have to get a permit from the city, and we've got to do this kind of right. I'm not allowed to go underground. What if I went underground, I say? Do what you want. So I got a shovel right there and dug it all up. There it is. You don't need a permit for this stuff. And, um, and he did some testing. He said, I still can't fix it. I got to call the underground guy. Well, when's that going to be? A week from Monday. So we're looking at two, two and a half weeks. Then they schedule the tech to come back over. Not acceptable. Unacceptable. So I said, okay, let's bring in uh, the guy as soon as we can. Got on the phone and uh, they came early. So to their credit, underground guy came, I think, on Wednesday he did all his thing, was there for about an hour, says, got it all fixed. I'll schedule a guy. Tech will come in and we'll let you know. And a Tech came in actually yesterday. Tech spends a little time there and says, the underground guy didn't do his job. There's still no signal to the house. And with all the Christ-like love and affection I could I could muster up at that moment, I, I'd say, I swear by the name of Odin, you will not leave this property until there's World Wide Web in our house. This is crazy. It's been nine Days. We can't live. Look at my children. They're they're crying. You've got to bring it here. He calls an underground guy. The guy does a great favor, to their credit. He leaves an underground site, comes to our deal, fixes it. Six hours later, (laughs) we have internet TV at the Dreadway house. Merry Christmas. We are excited. I mean, when that news rang out in our home, I mean, the jubilation. It's like we won the lottery. And all kinds of memes and gifts were flying, wonderful internet humor going on today. That was awesome. But we did celebrate Thanksgiving without the internet, so it was just like the first Thanksgiving. In fact, it was was before that. This is an actual picture of our Thanksgiving without the internet. My daughter, my 10-year-old, actually said, and I think she was serious, was this what it was like to live in the 1800s? (laughs) Get that picture up, all right. Well, obviously, it it wasn't all terrible. We actually did things like conversation, and we played games, and we had fun. I mean, and we did have a little Internet. Somebody uh, said, hey, well, just use your hotspot on your phone. It's like, okay, Uh, like I didn't think about that. The problem is we have a, a carrier, a cell carrier, that apparently doesn't provide data in the center of a city. We live a half a mile that way. It's the center of the city. And we had no signal on our phones in our house, which is on a hill in the middle of a city. We had one bar in the master bedroom and our kids would, we just huddle as a family together just trying to eke out little (laughs) texts and things like that. I won't tell you who the carrier is. Starts with an A. Ends with a T. T. But anyway. That was our Thanksgiving Day. And then... uh, now, the morning of Thanksgiving was, was not so fun. We actually had a bunch of old guys meet at the football field. And this is an annual tradition. A bunch of old guys meet at the football field, and, uh, and we play football. And pretending like we still have it. The problem is we never had it, and now we're just old people who never had it trying to play football. And the older we get, the, the more we relax the rules of football. It used to be this, you know, kind of hardcore two-flag deal, you know, and spinning moves and all that kind of stuff. And, and then it was no flags, two-hand touch, one-hand touch. Now it's just dirty look, dirty look, and yeah, we just don't want to spend that much effort. But uh, uh, on my team, Ryan was the quarterback, our children's pastor here, and, and he, was looked at, he looked at some weakness in the, in the, in the flat. And he goes, okay, you're going to go down the middle. You're going to fake left. You're going to go right. And I'm going to hit you deep. It's going to be great. Here's how that went. Uh, one of my most interesting moments. There it is. Okay, he's pump faking right, looks left, a beautiful throw, right to the chest. Oh. That's just, look at the smug look on that guy's face. Yeah, oh, that's horrible. In football, you catch first, run second. That's just kind of the rule. So that's uh, first world problems, no internet, and a drop pass, all right? That's the hardship and humiliation of of my week. As we study this creed found in Philippians chapter 2, the creed has two halves. The creed is the first creed of the first church. This creed that we're studying, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is the foundations of the faith. The first sentence is a sentence of humility and hardship that Jesus Christ endured for us. The second sentence is his exaltation, so that he'll have the name that's above every name. So there's two sentences in the creed. There's two halves of the creed. The first is the descent of the Savior, demonstrating the relentless love of God, suffering under every evil and sin of this broken world. The second sentence of the creed, the second half of the creed is the ascent of the Savior, demonstrating the victory love has over every evil and sin of this broken world. That's the creed. Our goal as we study the creed literally word for word throughout this five-week series is for us to get this creed in our hearts, in our souls, so that this will be our creed as well. So I hope you uh, memorize it, or at least as you come to church week after week, you're getting more familiar with this creed. So let's all stand together as we do every week, and I'd like you to read this with some boldness here, some gusto. We're getting to the end here. Uh, Let's really get this in our souls here. Let's read this together. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. That's the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And it it is Christ-centered. It follows the descent of Jesus, as the creed says, starting by very nature God and ending with death on a cross. That's the first sentence, descending from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. That descending path is the path that God took to save us, to love us, to forgive us and to give us new life. That's the path that Jesus chose to save the world. It's the path that he chose to save us. It's the path that he chose to save you and me. By the descending self-sacrifice of Jesus, we are forgiven. We're given new and eternal life. He took the world's suffering, shame, scorn, sin upon himself. He bore it all. He was crushed under the weight of the brokenness of this world. That's the path that Jesus chose for us. Now, it's a path that is in line with the culture of the kingdom of heaven. The culture of the kingdom of heaven is upside down. It's not a quest for power. It's not a quest for prominence. It's not a quest for prosperity. The culture of the kingdom of heaven is self-denying, self-sacrificing, living for the benefit of others. Now during the ministry of Jesus, he was trying to ingrain this culture in his followers and he does this often. But I think the most stark example of how Jesus ingrains this culture of self-sacrifice is found in Matthew chapter 20. He's just about to go to Jerusalem where he would give his life. He's going to pay the price. He's going to give his life as a sacrifice for sin, to cover the sin of the whole world. He's giving his life as a sacrificial atonement for the evil of this world. And he makes it very clear what he's going to do. He says to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Very clear. Very clear. He he is the son of God. He is the leader of hundreds of disciples, if not thousands of disciples. And he's making it very clear why he's walking into Jerusalem to give his life as a sacrifice for all. To show the full measure of God's love for us. Immediately when they start walking, this opposite world shows up. The mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now this is a helicopter mom 2,000 years ago. They existed back then. They want to, you know, orchestrate everything for their children so that they experience, you know, all of life and and don't struggle. And anyway, that's helicopter mom shows up. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons and said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus says, I'm bringing a whole new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. They're thinking it's a kingdom of power and wealth and prosperity. So mommy comes along and says, one son at your left, one son at your right. I want my sons to be prosperous. I want my sons to be prominent, right? I want my sons to have it all. So Jesus, just declare one's on your left, one's on your right. Jesus, who could be very exasperated, seems to treat her with respect. Jesus answers, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink Jesus is going to drink a cup of suffering, not a cup of prosperity, a cup of suffering. We took communion together. When we take communion together, we take the bread, we take the cup. That symbolizes the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ. When we take that cup, we are drinking a cup of suffering. Many people participate in religious life because they think if they do good, God will prosper them. God will answer their prayers, right? Let's do a good thing for God so God will do good things for us. It's almost the same question here. Do you understand what you're doing? We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus who descended from being the very nature God to dying on a cross. We follow him. We don't follow a path of prosperity. We don't follow a path of of everything working out for our benefit. We follow a path of self-denial and self-sacrifice. That's the cup of suffering that Jesus was about to take. And he says, I don't think you know what you're getting into. I don't think you know this cup that I'm about to drink. He goes on to say this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Jesus says, you know how the world operates. The world operates with power, right? Great ones arise and great ones go to the top and, and great ones get all the honor and great ones get all the treasure. It's not like that in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the very nature of God, the greatest one, and yet he follows the path of self-denial to the cross. Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, even the Son of Man, even the very nature of God is giving his life to pay for the sins of the world, to pay for the wrongs of the world. In the kingdom of heaven, it's very clear the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's a different kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom, and the creed just follows right in that path. But the very nature of God became obedient to death on a cross. And when that happened, when Jesus gave it all, a question could be asked: Does that mean evil wins? Does that mean suffering wins? Does that mean darkness wins? Does that mean violence wins? Because if you were there on that Friday, and Jesus breathed his last breath at 3 p.m. saying, it is finished, he dies on that cross, and he is the embodiment of everything that is good and right and noble, life and love and light through Jesus Christ, and he breathes his last breath and dies on the cross, you could easily think on that Friday as the skies are dark and the hearts of everybody who loves him is dark, you could easily think evil and suffering will win. You would think that on Saturday as, as the body of Jesus was buried on that Friday night and Saturday is the Sabbath and everyone is at home, everyone is at rest, and it is silent. You could easily think that evil wins, darkness wins, until Sunday morning. Sunday morning, an answer rang out in heaven and on earth, who has the victory when Jesus rose again from the dead? When Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday morning, it was the absolute declaration that, in fact, love wins. Evil will not win. Darkness will not win. Suffering does not win. Injustice does not win. Violence does not win. Love wins. That's the declaration that went out on that Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. That's the exaltation of Jesus found in Philippians 2.9. This, this is the part of the creed that turns from Jesus descending to Jesus ascending. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, it's important in Bible study, whenever a therefore pops up, you've got to know what comes before, because there's a link here. We just talked about the descending of Christ. Because of the descending of Christ, there's an exaltation of Christ. And that word therefore is a little bit tricky in the original language. In the Greek, it's a, it's a compound transition, and it could either mean because or also. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it's kind of important in terms of the motivation, was Jesus exalted because he descended? In other words, did God reward Jesus because of his sacrifice? Was there this deal where God the Father said to Jesus, hey, listen, you walk a road of total self-sacrifice, of complete humility, of humiliation, and I'll reward you on the flip side? And, and there are some who think that therefore is a because. Jesus, because You gave yourself on a cross, therefore, I'm gonna reward you with the highest seat of honor and the most famous name on earth. That doesn't seem right, does it? If somebody does something kind because they're gonna be rewarded on the other side, doesn't that betray the motive? I think so. So you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus... You can't come to the conclusion that Jesus gave it all because, ooh, I can't wait to be prosperous on the other side, on the flip side. I can't wait to be the most famous in all the earth. No, that that just betrays it. So the word therefore doesn't mean because. God didn't reward Jesus because of his selfless sacrifice. The word more likely means also. In other words, in the kingdom of heaven, those who sacrifice just happen to be the most famous. That's just the way it works in the kingdom of heaven. On the earth, those who are the most famous are the ones who are typically self-centered and they're full of power and, and, and you know, they want the focus and they want the attention. The kingdom of heaven is the opposite. Those who give are the ones who happen to be the most exalted. Think of Mother Teresa, just the most you know, obvious example in our generation. Mother Teresa, She's, her name is famous in all the earth. She never sought fame. She never thought, oh, I'm gonna serve these lepers, because on the flip side, I'm going to be rich, filthy rich. No, no. the motivation is pure. It just so happens in the kingdom of heaven, those who sacrifice the most are the most exalted. So let's not think that Jesus was waiting for this exaltation and that was the motivation for his sacrifice. No, he sacrificed because of the heart of love for us, particularly those who are broken and poor and lonely and rejected and, and those labeled sinners, Jesus loved all of those people who were marginalized. He loved them all out of pure love, not motivated by any physical reward. I love the way Walter Hansen puts this concept. He says, This: the reward given to Christ was vindication by God. God vindicated Christ's death on a cross by exalting him to the highest place. The key word there is vindication. Vindication means to make right. To turn a wrong into right. To take something that is desperately evil and make something incredibly good out of that. And that's exactly what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead. The worst evil perpetrated on earth is when the very nature of God was crucified as a blasphemer and one of treason. I mean, that's the most unjust thing to ever happen. Not only that, but bearing the suffering and the sin of the world upon himself. That was the greatest evil ever perpetrated on earth. And so God vindicates that by accomplishing the greatest good ever done on earth, which is to raise Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ is the vindication of the death of Christ, making something horrifically evil into something incredibly good. God is in the business of vindication. God is in the business of taking everything wrong, the suffering of the world, the injustice of the world, the darkness of the world, the abuse of the world, and making it into something incredibly good by bringing such good in the world that all of these evils are vindicated so that good remains as evil declines. That's God's business. He's in the business of vindication. And he put a stamp on that at the resurrection. The resurrection was the beginning of the exaltation of Christ. The resurrection was the beginning of the vindication, making all that is wrong into all that is right. That's what Jesus did. All the wrongs of the world poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. So the father raised him from the dead to turn everything around, to turn wrong into right, to turn hate into love, to change death into life. God did that at the resurrection. And it proves to the whole world that love, in fact, wins. Love wins. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that God is, in fact, a loving heavenly Father. He is not a a, a vindictive, angry God full of wrath that just can't wait to pour judgment upon people who blow it. That's how most people perceive God. Jesus turned that around by giving everything. He shows the heart of the Father. is a heart of love and compassion and selfless service. Love wins. The love of God through the sacrifice of Christ is what ultimately brings victory over every evil in this world. The evil of the powerful taking advantage of the weak, the evil of the poor and the sick uh, not being given aid, the evil of violence maiming and taking lives, the evil of judgment marginalizing people who are different the evil of religion that separates people from God and peddles fear and threats and guilt, all of that evil is vindicated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because through the death of Christ, the pure love of God is shown, and through the resurrection of Christ, the pure victorious power of God is shown over every evil. Now, we may not see the vindication of every wrong in our lifetime. We may not see that. Some people live lives of hurt and pain and abuse, and they may not see the vindication of all of that until eternity. But just know and have faith and trust that because of the death of Christ, there is pure love, and because of the resurrection of Christ, there is pure victory, and everything that we see in this world that's wrong will be made right by the love of Christ. Everything in our own lives that is wrong and unjust and harmful will be vindicated in Christ. As a result, Philippians 2.9 says, Jesus was given the name above every name. As a result of his sacrifice, he was given the name above every name. Now, what is that name? I love the way Charles Mould says it. Jesus has come to be, in fact, the highest of names. Because, get this, service and self-giving are themselves the highest of divine attributes. That's why Jesus' name is above every name. Because he was a person of service and self-sacrifice, the very nature of God showed the full expression of God, the full nature of God of of service and self-sacrifice. That's who God is. The highest of names because of his sacrifice, because of the incarnation, God taking flesh, the human name Jesus is acclaimed as the highest name, and the man Jesus thus comes to be acclaimed as Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason why Jesus' name is above all names is because in the kingdom of heaven, those who give the most are exalted the most. And so as a result, right now, Jesus is right now the name above every name. He is right now the name above every name. Jesus right now is the most famous name on earth. Jesus is right now the most famous name on earth. There is no one close to the name of Jesus. There are 7.3 billion people in the world. One-third of the people of this world are Christians. They follow Jesus Christ. They honor Jesus Christ. He's Lord. He is Savior. One-third of the world's population. Christianity is the the greatest religion, the largest religion on earth. The second largest religion on earth is Islam. Now, they reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they accept Jesus as a prophet, as a teacher. They call him Isa. Isa born of Mary, a servant of God, teacher of God's word, blessed of God, prophet of God, they admire and respect Jesus. Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews, collectively 20% of the world's population, respect Jesus for his values and how he lived his life. 16% of the world's population has no formal faith allegiance, yet they also admire Jesus because of his love and his service for the poor. Now, they may not have a high regard for Christianity for some very good reasons, and by the way, Christianity is turning around, kind of leaving slowly that old religious peddling of guilt and shame and threats and rules and is beginning to embrace the culture of Jesus, which is love, being loved by God and loving others. So Christianity is having a little bit of turnaround, which I'm very excited about, but the name of Jesus has never been tarnished, never. It is estimated that 90% of the world's population knows the name of Jesus and respects the name of Jesus, at least worships the name of Jesus at most. 90% 90% of the world. If you pulled 10 random people from the entire face of the world, put them in a room, 9 out of 10 of them would say very good things about Jesus. They admire, respect, even honor and worship Jesus. 90%. It's astounding. Now, let's go back to when this creed was written. This creed was written in the 60s. Not 1960s. The 60s. sixties, right? The Apostle Paul, a leader of the church, under persecution by Rome, sitting in a prison writing this letter. He's writing the letter to a handful of kind of ragtag churches scattered over the southeastern corner of the Roman Empire. Nothing very fancy. Maybe 10,000 Christians, and that might be stretching it. Maybe 10,000. Ragtag groups of people meeting in synagogues and courtyards and he's writing this letter, he's writing this creed, saying there will come a day when the name of Jesus will be the name above all names. Now at the time, you'd think that was laughable. The name of Jesus, oh, you mean the one that was crucified in shame by both the religious community and the political community, basically rejected by everyone? Crucifixion was supposed to blot his name out of human history and out of memory, that Jesus? Name above all names, come on. Name above all names this Jesus that maybe 10,000 people on the face of the earth honor? A ragtag group of people, that Jesus? It seems laughable. And that was written in, in the face of the names of Caesar and the gods of the Roman Empire and the regional gods. I mean, at the time, you would read this letter of Philippians and go, You've got to be kidding me. The name above all names? That's a joke. And here we are 2,000 years later, and there is no name close to the name of Jesus in all the earth. Why is his name so exalted? Because his sacrifice was so complete. That's just the way it works in the kingdom of heaven. Right now, there's a name that has become very famous. In fact, over the last couple of years, there's a name that has become very famous in all the earth. It's the name John Allen Chow. John Allen Chow, you might have seen this picture. Um, He's an American. He's a Christian. It's deep in his heart to take the name of Jesus to unreached people groups, to people who did not know the name of Jesus. He believed it was put on his heart to visit the North Sentinel Island. North Sentinel Island is a protected island off the coast of India. There are maybe 100 people in a tribal people group that are protected. It's untouched. You cannot go there. It's illegal to even get close to that island. They're a tribal group. It's like going back in time 10,000 years. We're talking about bow and arrow. It's, it's, it's as tribal as can possibly be. There are very few of these purely tribal people group left on earth. So John Allen Chow believed that God put it on his heart to share the name of Jesus Christ with that tribe. He knew what was illegal, He knew it would cost him his life. In fact, the day before he visited that island, uh, this is just last week, he wrote in his journal, I don't want to die, but they need to know about Jesus. So he hired some fishermen to take him to the island. It was an illegal operation, cost him about 350 bucks. He brought with him some gifts. He just thought, okay, what what would these tribal people want or appreciate? So he got a few gifts together. And, um, and he tried to know something of their language. It was nearly impossible. It's a lot of high-pitched syllables. And, but he, he tried to grab a couple of those high-pitched syllables to, to, to say as he's approaching the shore. So these fishermen take him to just off the island. There's no way they're getting close because everyone who gets close gets shot with a bow and arrow. After the tsunami, a helicopter circled the island just to investigate, are these people okay? And they just shot arrows at the helicopter. And those are the people he believed God called them to. And so he gets dropped off offshore, he gets in a kayak, and he starts rowing towards the shore. And as he gets towards the shore, he is saying, in English, I love you with a big smile. I'm not armed. He showed him a few gifts. He's getting close to the shore. Before he even hits the sand, he's shot and killed with arrows. When I first read that story, I had mixed emotions. I mean, it was kind of, kind of disturbing. The, the first emotion I felt was kind of this senselessness. Like, that is senseless. Here's this kid, an incredible young man, all kinds of love for God, uh, skills, gifts, talents, just driven to do something great in this world. Before he even hits the sand, he's, he's shot to death. He's expressing incredible love for people he's never met. He just loves them. Out of the love of God, God just decides to love us. He just decides to love them. And he's rowing toward the shore, just trying to share love. Before he hits the sand, he's shot to death. It just seems senseless. But I was also preparing for this message. And you could have easily thought at the crucifixion of Jesus, that's senseless. Here's Jesus, a young man, full of life. This magnanimous personality, this powerful teacher, he's drawing thousands to himself. He's leading a movement of love. He decides to kind of row into Jerusalem knowing he's going to die. It seems senseless. And as I got to thinking about the paradigm of the kingdom of heaven, it is the sacrifice that is honored, not necessarily the results. The sacrifice is honored, not the results. So everybody on earth is talking about John Allen Chow. Everyone, all over the world. Every every news show, every bit of print media, every bit of social media is talking about John Allen Chow. Why are they talking about John Allen Chow? Because of his sacrifice. Not because of the result, but because of the sacrifice. That's the way it works in the kingdom of heaven. The death of Jesus seemed senseless at the time. It's all come to an end. The disciples are disbanding. Their leader has been crucified. It is over And even at the news of the resurrection, it was just this little group of people that called themselves The Way, but they were getting crucified, they were getting killed, they were getting fed to lions, they were being dipped in oil and and lit on fire alive in gardens, I mean, that was the early church. It all seemed kind of senseless. But right now today, 90% of the world admires Jesus. A third of the world worships Jesus. The world itself is becoming more like the kingdom of heaven as a culture of power and violence diminishes and a culture of love and service increases, where was all that started? At the sacrifice of Jesus. It's an exciting time to follow Jesus. And we don't follow him because it's our religion. We don't follow him because we're trying to get things from God by doing good religious things. We follow Jesus first because he is the full expression of the love of the Father. So we don't fear the Father. The Father's a loving, gracious, kind, forgiving, heavenly Father. And we know that because we see Jesus. The very character of God is of self-sacrifice and love, bearing the burdens of the world so he can give love to the world. That's who our God is. It means everything to believe that God is who Jesus showed him to be, loving and kind, and we receive that love. As we receive that love for us, knowing that we're in in a right relationship with God by grace through the love of Christ, we now are able to share that love with people. We're able to receive that love and share that. So imagine striving to love as selflessly and sacrificially as Jesus in our house. Play a little game in your house for the next month as you approach the Christmas season. Who can outgive and sacrifice to each other this month? How fun will that be? Well, I'll get stuffed all over. Well, then you've got an attitude problem. There is great pleasure in giving. There's great pleasure in serving. It doesn't seem like it at first because this world still has a power paradigm. You know, got to be in charge. Give that up. Give up the privilege of power and start taking on the privilege of serving. Take this holiday season in your house to strive to love like Jesus. You won't do it perfectly. I guarantee you're going to fail it 100 times. But give it a shot. Give it a shot. Love selflessly, sacrificially. Try to outgive to each other in your homes. Then pour that out in your workplace. Just be the person who's paying attention to others at work. You know, noticing other people, being kind to other people, forgiving quickly, making sure other people get a lot of credit for the things that they do. Just be really cool at work, selfless and sacrificial. Be that way in your neighborhood. Be that way with a stranger. And I'm telling you, when that happens, the name of Jesus will continue to rise and this, culture will con- this world will continue to look increasingly like the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Let's close. Our God and Father, we, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you proved that love. As Romans 5 says, you demonstrate that love and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While this world was still broken, Jesus gave his all for us. The perfect one, the very nature of God, took on every evil and sin of this world, was crushed by it on the cross. That's a proof of your love for us, but there's victory in that love. Love wins by the resurrection. By the resurrection of Christ, you've vindicated the greatest wrong into the greatest right. And now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ throughout all the earth, the culture of love is sweeping this planet. Where there is still a culture of power and violence, uh, it is being rejected and a culture of love and service is being accepted. All of that started by the name of Jesus Thank you for that love. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you that there is nothing that separates us from you. Nothing because of the love of Christ. And thank you that not only can we be loved, but we have the privilege of loving others. So I pray that you would give us the power by your spirit in us, by the example of Jesus Christ, to love selflessly and sacrificially as Jesus did. I pray that would start in our homes, that we would have loving, serving homes, serving one another. I pray that we would have a kind of lifestyle that's lived in our workplace, in our neighborhood that loves other people even loving the stranger, even loving our enemies. As we love, the name of Jesus will be lifted so that one day every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the earth, above the earth, under the earth would exalt the name of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.